The last seven days of Jesus' life were the most consequential ever lived. These pivotal moments not only reshaped history, but continue to hold profound significance for our lives today. Join us as we explore how Jesus' final week can still change your world in remarkable ways. Good morning to you on this Super Bowl Sunday. Anybody excited about the big game? Uh, fairly, fairly muted. Um, kind of hard to get excited when Taylor Swift and Joe Biden rigged that Kansas City is going to win, right? Nobody? No, nobody follow the news? Just me? Um, I actually think Super Bowl Sunday is the wrong name for today. I think we need to uh, rebrand this Sunday, something a little bit more accurate. And so my suggestion is we start calling this Sunday Chicken Apocalypse Sunday. Because today, an estimated 1.23 billion chicken wings are going to be devoured. 1.23 billion. This is the day that chicken prophets have been clucking about all year, the day of doom that is coming. Um, and, and I get it, because probably uh, hot wings might just be the best part about Super Bowl Sunday. That, of course, and the commercials. Um, this afternoon, one of the ads that will be tucked between a 30-second funny Doritos commercial and a, you know, make you laugh beer ad is going to be a commercial about Jesus. For the second year running, well, we haven't seen it yet, so we'll just wait and see. And that's where my sermon's going, so just hold off. Uh, you're such optimists, that's awesome, I love it. Um, for the second year running, uh, a Michigan company is dropping huge money to try to rebrand Jesus to rebrand him to the American public in a campaign that they call He Gets Us. Their stated goal is this, quote, to help raise the relevancy of Jesus to people who dismiss him by trying to get back to what Jesus modeled, taught, and experienced. And so some wealthy Christians have dropped huge cash, like 20 million bucks for a 60-second spot because they actually believe Jesus has a public relations problem. Now, this PR problem is not of Jesus' doing. It's one that's been created by some of his followers. Jesus' PR needs work because in the volatile American political climate, Jesus has been appropriated as a symbol and a supporter of various political causes. So you'll hear people say stuff like, my Jesus would proud, proudly wear a rainbow flag. And somebody else says, are you out of your mind? My Jesus would defend my right to have an AR-15 and, and snipe away at you lefty communist crazies. You actually hear stuff like that in various Christian circles because increasingly Jesus has become tethered to various political agendas. And as a consequence, many outside of the church confuse the message of Jesus with a political platform. And inside the church, faithfulness to Jesus gets blurred to faithfulness to pursuing and promoting said political agenda. 
And so politicians see no dissonance in endorsing Jesus alongside of their Second Amendment opinion because they believe the two actually go hand in hand. And this is why in some sectors today, Christian nationalism is rapidly on the rise. Now, Christian nationalism believes that the the gas pedal to accelerate the advancement of Jesus' kingdom is a political one. And so culturally, it's becoming difficult for some people to separate Jesus and his goals from political parties and theirs. Because people of all stripes keep trying to co-op Jesus in support of their ideological, their political, or their social agenda. Some do it sincerely, some do it shamelessly. And so it's into this climate that the He Gets Us campaign aims to try to let Jesus and his message stand on its own. They state, quote, Jesus calls people to a third way, not a left, not a right, not a conservative, not a liberal. And then referring to their ads that they're gonna be running during Super Bowl, one financer explained their motivation. He said, quote, I fear evangelical Americans' political ambition and their deeply held religious beliefs are in conflict right now. What will help them win politically is alienating people from Christianity. Hence the string of he gets us commercials trying to show people what Jesus was like, what he valued most to demonstrate the relevance of his life and his gospel to today over 100 million Super Bowl spectators. And if you get to watch the Super Bowl today, at least on an American feed with the good commercials, not the horrible Canadian ones, but if you get to watch the Super Bowl on an American feed, you'll see one of Jesus' commercials and you can judge for yourself if they were successful or not. Why am I telling you this? Um, We're starting a series today called How to Change the World in Seven Days, looking at the last seven days of Jesus' life. And if you know the Gospels, you know that the writers, they slow down their storytelling pace to these last seven days. In fact, over a full one-third of everything the Gospel writers write about Jesus took place in these seven days. And in some ways, that's not surprising, right? Jesus knows that he's about to die, And naturally, the gravity of his coming cross brings a clarity and an urgency to everything that he says and does. Just like if you only had one week left to live, you'd spend it doing and and sharing the most important things to you. Same with Jesus. And so these final seven days are packed with some shocking and dramatic plot twists that are gonna change the world in the most beautiful way possible. And, And here's my conviction going into this series, is that what transpired on those seven days can change your world too. Like you can get in on this. Now one purpose of this series is to show those of you who haven't yet got in on Jesus and his life changing work, I wanna show you how his life, especially what happened on these seven days, can change your world in the most beautiful way. But my second purpose 
is that we who are followers of Jesus might let Jesus' priorities in these last seven days form a bit of a blueprint that guides what we value and what we do so that we become people that God uses to change things for the better as well. And so Jesus' last seven days are gonna show us how we can join with Jesus, not only to have our world changed by him, but be agents of change with him ourselves. Now, I begin talking uh, about this ongoing co-opting of Jesus that is happening you know, by people on you know, different political stripes to try to co-opt Jesus for their own political uh, agenda. That isn't something that's just happening today. That's actually nothing new to, to that. In fact, it's the first thing that Jesus encounters when he enters Jerusalem and that seven day countdown clock to his crucifixion starts ticking down. The first thing that Jesus meets, the first thing that Jesus meets are crowds with a very specific agenda for Jesus. Now these crowds are celebrating Jesus' arrival as he comes into the city They're celebrating because they anticipate that he has showed up to finally do for them what they want to get done. Jesus, on this day that we commonly call Palm Sunday, is greeted by well-meaning folks who who are trying to co-opt Jesus for their own political ends, their own personal priorities. Now what I I hope you begin to see is that this is actually not just a temptation back then to the crowds or right now in American politics. This is actually a, a temptation that is very common for us and it's a very dangerous temptation. We try to co-op Jesus for our own agendas. Now I, I say this to you because I know we all have this natural tendency to, to see light through the confines of the, the, the little us-sized box. You see light through your own experiences, your own needs and ambitions, your own desires for your life, and you want Jesus to work within that box to achieve what you want, what you think needs to be done, when in reality, what he is doing, what he is inviting you into, is so much bigger. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 21 and the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. If you have your Bible, open up with me to Matthew 21 or you can read along on the screen. Verse one, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet, this is Zechariah, might be fulfilled. Tell Um, This is the prophecy. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. 
A very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him were, uh, and those who were followed kept shouting, quote, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Um, As Jesus enters Jerusalem, all of the gospel writers, they structure their story in such a way that they want you to see that Jesus is in full control of the situation. That that he is not the victim of events who's kind of getting carried away on some tide outside of his control, but he is actually the conductor. He is fully aware, fully in charge of, of even the minute details, even the donkey, which is highly symbolic. Jesus, of course, who walked everywhere, decides on this day he's not going to walk. He's going to ride on this donkey, thus fulfilling this ancient prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. And in doing so, Jesus is intentionally projecting that he is the king that Zechariah prophesied about. And the crowd picks up on this. And they do a couple of things in response. They lay out their coat and branches on the ground, and then they shout, Hosanna, reciting Psalm 118, verse 25. Now John, in his account of this event, in his gospel, John tells us that the branches that they grab are palm branches, not just a various assortment of branches from any tree around them. They were palm branches. And this is a very, very important piece of information. So the question is, why are they waving palm branches and why are they laying them in front of Jesus? What are they doing? Right? Are they just trying to fan him in the hot desert heat? Is this some kind of cultural version of you know, shaking pom-poms and laying out the red carpet for a celebrity? It, is, is, that what's, is, that, is that what is happening here? Well, to explain what I think is happening and why the Pharisees in Luke's gospel react very negatively to this event and why this event actually moves Jesus to start weeping, why they have such dramatic responses, um, I need to give you a two-minute history lesson, okay? Now, I know some of you just can't stand history, but... Give me two minutes, okay? I think you're going to find this interesting and compelling. Uh, you've probably heard about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a great military, Greek military leader who conquered and controlled much of the known world, including Israel, in the 300s BC. Now, after Alexander's death, his empire was divided up among some of his top generals, including the uh, Ptolemies, who from which Cleopatra comes from that line. They ruled Egypt. And another group called the Seleucids ruled the area of Israel and around modern-day Syria. And the Seleucids were all about the advancement of Greek culture. They loved Greek culture, believed that Greek culture was the best. They were all about trying to, you know, push and advance Greek culture in whatever conquered nation or or tribe people uh, they ruled over. And of course, that put them at odds with devout Jews because Jews are not known for their cultural flexibility. 
they were very fastidious in keeping Judaism unpolluted. And so in 180 BC, some Greeks took over the Jewish temple and they defiled it by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And this so outraged the Jewish people, it sparked a revolt that was led by a priestly family known as the Maccabees. And in time, the Seleucids were driven from Jerusalem, and the temple was once again back in Jewish hands. It was cleansed, they cleaned it up, they rededicated it to the Lord, and the historic festival that came out of this, like a celebration of this event, is what is now known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah remembers and celebrates that liberation of the temple. Now the Maccabees, they realized that that in this period between the temple's defilement and when they recaptured it and rededicated it to the Lord, they missed in that time the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they decided, yeah, we missed it. We like that feast better late than never. Let's throw a Feast of Tabernacles a little bit late. Now, it would be like, imagine, you know, we were in, you know, a total war situation where we have a total war economy and, and we're in the middle of kind of crisis and during that time uh, we decided that Christmas was canceled, we're just not doing Christmas and then we win the war and it's May and we're like, yeah, we miss Christmas, we don't care, let's have Christmas in May. It'd be kind of like that. Um, are you still with me? Okay, good. Just another 30 seconds, stay with me. And so part of the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles People wave palm branches in their celebration and they chant the halal, which is Psalms 113 to 118. Now during this makeup feast under the Maccabees, when the people, while they're waving their palm branching and chanting the halal, when they got to Psalm 118 verse 25, this verse took on a new significance and meaning to them. The verse that says, O Lord, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us. O Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And you can imagine how they're thinking of these verses in the midst of what they're experiencing, right? They're thinking, Lord, save us from these pagan Greeks. Destroy them, conquer them. Hosanna, save us from our enemies. And so after this, the palm branch became the political symbol of the Maccabean revolution against pagan oppressors of God's people. Now fast forward 200 years. The Maccabees are gone. The Seleucids are gone. But there's still an oppressor of God's people. It's Rome. And there's still a group who is active in resisting the Romans. They are known as the Zealots. And guess what their symbol is? Anybody want to take a guess? Very good. Thank you. The palm branch. And so the fact that the gospel writers tell us that they are waving, John wants to know not just branches, but palm branches, and the fact that they cry out Psalm 118.25 from the halal while they are waving these branches makes this less a red carpet welcoming ceremony and more of a revolutionary charged political rally. You see, the crowds are welcoming Jesus into the city and calling for the overthrow and the deliverance from their oppressors. 
like the Maccabees did before them, like the zealots have been trying to do currently, and they think this prophet, Jesus, who clearly walks in the power of God, is the man to do it. And so culturally, these actions are just as provocative as people firing you know, AK-47s in the air and pulling down the statue of their current you know, dictator. They're calling for overthrow of Rome, for revolt, and they believe that Jesus has come to lead them to that end, to that victory. And so it is this fervor that grips the crowd and sees them waving palm branches and chanting part of the halal. And this is why the Pharisees in Luke's account, they tell Jesus, Jesus, quiet your people. Not because they don't want them chanting Psalm 118, because they have their own political concerns. They are worried, the Pharisees are worried that the crowds might poke the Roman bear. And so the Pharisees, who very much like the status quo, thank you very much, and their position of power within it, they don't want these people invoking the memory of the Maccabees, chanting God save us, blessing this potential liberator from the Romans who has come in to the city. This is dangerous revolution talk. So quiet your disciples, Jesus, the Pharisees say. And, and how does Jesus react to this, you know, seemingly innocu- innocuous event if they're just like, yay, it's Jesus, wave palm branches, and we're chanting a couple of Bible verses? How does Jesus react? Well, he weeps. And then he says in Luke 19, he prophesies the horrific result of this type of revolutionary thinking, quote, they will crush you and your children. He weeps at their fervor. Their desire to try to co-opt Jesus for their own agenda has blinded them to what God is actually doing and will only bring their destruction and their ruin. Oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew what would bring you peace today. So that scene on Palm Sunday is less a, a, a children's Sunday school pageant and more a politically charged call for revolution. And so the crowd is hopeful and they're celebratory because they think Jesus is about to do for them what they want done, what they think is most important. And so they heap blessing and praise on him because his entry as king fits with their agenda, with their plans. They have co-opted Jesus and made him about what they are about. They are in effect praising a version of Jesus that's actually a fictional creation of their own plans and their own priorities. And and this is where the story hits really close to home. Because every one of us in this room face a temptation to to co-op Jesus and make him about the things that are most important to us. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversation with well-meaning church folks who are uncomfortable with some aspect of the biblical Jesus. And so they carve off those parts. They carve off the parts they struggle with. And in, 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 that, in that wake of that act, they, they kind of reinvent and reconstruct a Jesus that fits better with their worldview or better with their lifestyle. 
Maybe they're uncomfortable with his sexual ethic or how he seems to prioritize the marginalized and the vulnerable or they disregard and dismiss what he says about money or how this Jesus, the biblical Jesus, seems way more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And so they edit those parts out of his teaching or his command or his example and they create a customized version of Jesus that's more suited to their priorities more in line with their political agenda, more compatible with their worldview, more in sync with their likes and wants. My Jesus wouldn't ask me to step out of my church bubble and join him on mission. My Jesus just loves. He never takes a hard stand or challenges me on anything. My Jesus wouldn't want me to love and serve those people because we have an immigration crisis. And those people are a problem, not a priority. My Jesus wouldn't expect me to embrace a 2,000-year-old sexual ethic and wait till I'm married. Because my Jesus wants for me exactly what I want for me. And in a sleight of hand, your faith formulates a different Christ one who has been created out of your heart image, rather, you created in his. And your Jesus will love what you love, affirm what you affirm, hate who you hate, make ultimate what you think is ultimate, because your version of Jesus is just a fictitious reflection of your own heart's aspiration. And that Jesus has no authority, he has no ability to save you or radically redefine your life because he's been created out of your spiritual inclinations to just agree with you. And you, in the end, have authority over him. You've become master of the Jesus you created rather than servant of the Jesus who created you. And that Jesus will not change your world because he's just a cardboard prop to affirm all of your choices and your desires. How can God overcome the deep issues of your heart and change you if he is simply the product of your own heart's imaginings? This last week of Jesus' life begins with people praising a version and vision of Jesus built on what they think he should do for them. And they praise him, but on their terms. And Jesus will have none of it. In fact, these next seven days, Jesus is gonna say and do stuff completely at odds with what the crowd wants from him which is why Luke has these same crowds changing their chanting from blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to away with him, crucify him. Because Jesus of Nazareth is actually incompatible with the Jesus of their heart's construction. If you want God to change your world, Step one, you have to let Jesus be Jesus. You have to let him tell you who he is. You have to let his voice define what is right and wrong. 
You have to let him clarify what is most important in your life and in your character. You have to let him decide what is most vital for you, not the other way around. A Jesus that is constructed or co-opted by our spiritual imagination is set up to just be a yes man to your own heart's preferences. He is not the one who has come in the name of the Lord. So how do you know? How do you know when we're this far away from Jesus of Nazareth actually walking the earth? How do you know if you're following Jesus of Nazareth or like, a crowd, or like the crowd praising of Jesus of your own imaginings and your own creation? Well, there are some warning signs. First, if you find yourself wanting what Jesus can give you more than you want him, that's a warning sign. See, if that's the case, this Jesus is just some means to an end to you. He, he's like, and I, I've seen this happen too often. People who, whose life just hits the fan, right? The feces and the fan start to integrate and life is just going really, really bad. And so they're like desperate for anything. So sure, I'll try Jesus. And they throw this Hail Mary that maybe Jesus will help them. And then guess what? The crisis is over and things get better. And guess what happens to Jesus? All done with that on my own way. Because they don't want Jesus. They, they want what they hope he can do for them. Second warning sign, if the inevitable hard stuff in life causes you to spiritually unravel, that's a huge warning sign. And, and by that I mean, and, and, and hear me, I've been at times in my life where my life was unraveling and it was sometimes hard to get praise off my lips and so I, I, I speak this as one of you knowing that this is hard. But if you're unable to praise him in the midst of hardship, perhaps it's because you have an imaginary Jesus who's only worthy of your worship when he's doing for you what you want done. But when you worship the living God, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together, then the object of your worship is bigger than your circumstances, which means your worship, your hope, your joy, your love for him will transcend even those difficult events in your life because he is bigger than those things. When you let Jesus be Jesus, you'll be able to worship the God who acts in ways that you don't understand. Right? You can worship the God who on one hand supernaturally springs the apostle Peter from prison and on the other hand leaves John the Baptist in prison to be beheaded by a wicked, egotistical, maniac king. Like, what? I don't get it. So you can hold that tension by faith because you know that Jesus is so much wiser and bigger and better than you on your best day. So of course he doesn't always do things the way that you would want them done or the way that you would script them, but he always does what is right, good, and just. When your faith is in Jesus of Nazareth, you are able to trust him and love him even when he doesn't act the way that you would cho choose. Uh, another red flag is that if, you, uh, if your Jesus tells you it's okay to do the stuff that he has told you not to do in his word, 
it feels ridiculous that I have to say this, but I have to say this pastorally. If your Jesus tells you that you get a pass, you don't have to do stuff that he tells you to do in his word, uh, I would really, really question if you're following Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Jesus just wants me to be happy, so he's okay with me shacking up with my girlfriend. Where, which Jesus said that to you again? Right? I know that whole forgive 70 times seven thing, but, but Jesus wouldn't expect me to actually do that to this person who did this thing. I've had conversations like this, and in my mind, I'm like, really? So Jesus be like, you know that thing I said in my word to you? Yeah, I was having a bad day, right? Peter burnt the coffee and Andrew was snoring all night and I didn't get much sleep and I didn't really mean it, so, so you can just forget about that part. If your Jesus excuses stuff away in direct opposition to what he told you in his word, it is not Jesus of Nazareth that you are listening to. It is a creation, a figment of your own heart's spiritual imagination. One last warning sign. I'll drink less coffee next Sunday, I promise. I won't be as like all fired up. I'm like, Sean, settle down, just settle down. They came here, these happy people, it's baptism Sunday. (laughs) One last warning sign. That the Jesus in your mind might not be Jesus of Nazareth is that there is little transformation in your life and you're not really growing in love. Remember, the primary marker of the transforming presence of Jesus in our lives is the growing presence of Jesus' love in us. If you have been following Jesus for years and you're not spiritually growing, you're not bearing fruit, there's, there's not a growing amount of love and humility of kindness and justice, those things aren't swelling in your life. Or if your character and your virtue is getting left far behind your ideology or your theology, I would be concerned. Because the real Jesus wants to transform you and your lifestyle. Imaginary Jesus will not, because he cannot. So to see your world change, first step, is in humility, you have to let Jesus be Jesus. It's true as the campaign says, he gets us, but just as crucial is that we get him. We get him right. We embrace him as he is. He isn't a meme or an ideology. He's not a political prop. He is not a name to be dropped to try to give you some moral authority on a position. He isn't personable, customizable like a pet that follows you around wherever you go through life. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the final word on everything that is and everything that will be. That's who Jesus is. And he has invited you to join him in his life and his love. And he's called you into something bigger and better than you could imagine. Not the other way around. Now the crowds who chant out Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, they chant out those verses because it fits with their aspirations for this 
guy who's coming into the city, this, this king who they hope is going to deliver them from Rome. But they seem to have missed that just three verses before, just three verses before, we read this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. Those of us who insist on being the builder of our own Messiah so that we can master our own life's agendas will reject Jesus of Nazareth and in his place we will construct a Jesus who's on a leash, a God who exists to do our bidding and your life will remain unchanged. For that Jesus is created in your image. But Jesus of Nazareth is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through his blood on the cross. And so from now to Easter... I pray that this Jesus shows us and tells us who he is and what he's about, and I pray that each of us will have the humility and the reverence and the conviction of need and the courage of faith to let Jesus be Jesus, because that's when stuff happens. Amen? Let's stand and sing. I forgot to call the worship team up. Sorry, guys. Awkward pause for you at home. (laughs) While the worship team's coming, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you didn't just leave us to our own imaginations to conjure up who you are and what you've done. You have revealed yourself. You have shown yourself through your word, through history. I ask, Lord, that we would be a people that are hungry to know you as you have shown yourself. That we'd be a people who, who, who digest and find your word to be bread of life, not because they historically tell us stuff, but because they commune us with you, the living God. And may your spirit that revealed to the disciple, that reminded the disciples of who you are and what you have done and what you said also be working in us. That we would continually submit our imaginings and our ponderings about the bigness of who you are to who your spirit has revealed Christ to be. And may you be able to do your incredible work to change our world, to change our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.